as we get started today. You can grab your Bible if you have it along with you, uh, or your tablet or phone or whatever you use. Uh, turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be spending a little bit of time there today. Uh, it's where you can find the Ten Commandments. And, you know, what we've been doing is, is following the story of Israel as God has saved them. And, and what we see is that Israelites have been saved from the Pharaoh in Egypt, and they've been, they were brought out into the wilderness. And we see that God saved Israel from the, the coming army of Pharaoh as they were uh, ready to just kind of get rid of all the Israelites. And God saved them once again by bringing them through the waters, and it was all the Lord's doing. It was all the Lord's work. It wasn't really any work or, or any work that uh, the Israelites had to do. And now we see the order of what's happening. We see that God saved Israel, but now he's going to give them a new way to live. So the commandments are not a way to be saved, right? Uh, God didn't say, when they were back in Egypt, well, you follow these ten ways and you do it perfectly, then I will lead you out of Egypt and then I will save you from Pharaoh. Instead, it was the other way around. Grace came first and the way to live came second, the Ten Commandments. Because here's the thing, uh, God invited his people uh, from this area from, right, death to life, this area from being captive to being free, but this freedom that he gave, it didn't mean doing whatever they wanted whenever they wanted it. There was going to be boundaries to this freedom that God gave his people. They were supposed to respond and live within these boundaries because God knew that if they lived within these boundaries, the Ten Commandments, they would actually be flourishing. That they would actually have freedom for a, a longer time, for perhaps even eternity, continued freedom. And the other thing God wanted to accomplish in these commandments was so that others in the world, that the nations surrounding Israel would see God through the way that they live. So let's look, and we're going to read through Exodus 20, starting at verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, 
But the seventh day is Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. These commandments were meant to be a way that, I had said it earlier, that the nations, the surrounding nations, the surrounding peoples would be able to see God. The Ten Commandments are this playbook, you could almost say, of how to live to the grace that God had given Israel. And I think we have a fair amount of experience living underneath laws. Does anyone know how many federal laws there are? No guesses. If you would think about how many federal laws, I read somewhere this last week that uh, in the 80s or 90s, they actually put them in book form. Sounds pretty fun. There was 50 volumes, and, and then there's debate on, on how many actual laws there are, somewhere between 20 and 45,000 or something like that. So they say, like, oh, maybe 23,000, because some of those laws might be just adjustments to other laws that have been, been passed. You know, as each year goes by, there's actually more laws that get enacted at the federal level. I heard somewhere around Congress enacts about 125 laws every year or adjustments to laws. When you think about living underneath law, it can get pretty complex because you have federal law, but then there's state laws, and then there's local ordinances. So many laws. And yet, what do we say about our country? It's the land of the free. Living under law and yet having freedom because we know that within bounds there are some type of freedom. I was thinking about what laws we, we most probably think about traffic laws, maybe, for those who are at least driving, right? There are a certain set of laws and things that we are to follow when we're driving a vehicle, like stopping at a stop sign or stopping at a stop-and-go light. I don't know if that's what everyone calls that, the red, the yellow, and the green light. Stopping when the light is yellow. 
You know, the interesting thing about laws is that sometimes we try to figure out how to bend the law. We try to think about, well, how can we, yeah, I'm kind of following that law, but, you know, is going over the speed limit really breaking the law? Hmm. Bending the law. Is a, a rolling stop at a stop sign when no one else is there is that really breaking the law? Might be hard for us to think about keeping the law perfectly. It might make us wonder, well, you know, are there really laws within those 23,000 federal laws that are just kind of old, outdated, they really don't apply anymore. Do we really need to worry about them? Because I think those are some of the same things that some people say when they think about the Ten Commandments. That they're old. You know, they're things that we usually do anyway. So why don't we just not worry about them, and we'll move on to the next thing. But I think, I think that they're involved in our life more than perhaps we give them credit. That God wanted to use these ways and will continue to want to use these ways to be a way that God shows that there are are a light to the nations, that there are, are a way that you follow God in which others will notice. My sermon just went away. That's dangerous. Um, and Jesus actually went on to summarize ten laws down to two. And, and, he, and he did so this way. Brianna, could you put Luke 10 up on the screen? He said, loving God and loving others is what are the most important commands. And I think he really summarized the Ten Commandments in these, these two areas, the first four being loving God and then, and then five through ten being loving your neighbors and others. Jesus answered the uh, Pharisees, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and you will love your neighbor as yourself. We respond just like the Israelites did to being saved by living out these ways in response, in gratitude to what God has done in our life. And the thing about the Ten Commandments is that when God put them into place, He was really speaking against the natural order of things, the way that, lie, uh, that people functioned in societies then. The first commandment was, was saying you should honor God as the only God. You shall have no other gods before me. And it was important. 
because as the Israelites were living in Egypt, there was someone who claimed to be divine, who claimed to be God, and that was Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the ruler over Egypt, was himself considered to be a divine being, that what he said goes, and that he is, if he says it, people listen. To have all-powerful control, that's what the Pharaoh was. But yet, God says, no, no one else other than me is supposed to have absolute authority in my kingdom, which is the entire world and universe. Everything is under God's control. No leader should be exalted above God. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. I rightly know the only or the one true God, trusting Him alone and looking to Him for every good thing humbly and patiently. And I love and fear and honor God with all of my heart. When we love our God, when we love God, we put nothing in competition with Him. We recognize that He is up here in everything else. Doesn't measure up. Everything else is under His control. Everything else is down here. And we respond with love and devotion, devoting ourselves only to God. But I think there's another aspect where everything else is here and God is up here. Sometimes we like to put ourselves up there too. Maybe we don't outrightly say it, I want to be God and I want people to listen to what I have to say, but just underneath the surface, it brings us all the way back to Adam and Eve, the desire to be in control. In control of our lives and, and even in control of others and wanting to, them to do what we say. And we need to remember that's not our place. God's in control. And we're not. We're not. When we, when we love God and we recognize that He's in control, we're going we're gonna to change the way that we talk about Him. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna not use His name in ways that, that degrade Him. We're not going to use His names in ways that wouldn't be honoring to Him. We're going we're gonna to give our time to Him willingly not seeing it as an obligation, but seeing it as an opportunity. But what about the other side of things, the loving others? We can love them too by the way we, we talk to them, talk about them, talk in front of them, the way we, we post comments back to them online the way we respond in person and in text. 
think we can tell a lot of, about people and how they love others by how they talk about them when they're not there. When you're frustrated about what someone has done or what someone posted about what someone does and you're having a conversation with someone else, how do we love our neighbors in that situation? Are we more prone to be more flippant with our words? a little more harsh than we should be because that person's not there. They won't hear what you're saying. Hmm. How do we honor others? Because I think, I think what we like to do is look at the Ten Commandments and think they're just so easy. Thou shall not murder. Man. I got that one. No problem. I didn't do that. Didn't do it today. Didn't do it yesterday. Didn't do it ever. So easy, right? If you love your neighbors, you don't murder them. Right? Well, that's a pretty low bar, isn't it? And I don't think it's meant to be such a low bar because the catechism actually puts it this way. It says, I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor. Not by, oh, my thoughts, my words, when I talk about them, right? By my look or gesture, and certainly not by my actual deeds. And it adds this, and I'm not to be party to this in others. Rather, I'm to put away all desire for revenge. Catechism goes on to say something more, that we're, if we're really to love our neighbor, we're going to also remove envy and hatred and anger and vindictiveness. If killing, if murder is a low bar, seems that the catechism made it a pretty high bar when it added belittling, envy, hatred, even the very thought of doing so. We love our neighbors by how we talk to them we love others by how we talk to them, but we love them as well by what we say when they're not present, by what we think in our minds that we don't tell anybody else. Hmm. And I think there's an important reason why we're going to set ourselves up with a bar that is so high that we wouldn't want to belittle, demean, insult. It's because every individual, 
was created in the image of God. It doesn't matter the color of their skin or the in their ethnicity. It doesn't matter how they vote. Doesn't matter if they're a Democrat or if doesn't matter if they're a Republican or if they're an independent or Green Party or whatever other parties are out there. It doesn't matter a person's health or their ability. It doesn't matter what age they are or any other factor like we want to put in. Every person is created with an image an image that represents God in this world. So we're not to murder as a low, but we're not to demean. We're not to insult. Jesus even takes it further. We're not to, to do that, but, but, but we're, also, we're also to actually love the enemy. And then pray for the people who, who persecute us because they represent God. They're made in his image. Pastor Kevin DeYoung, in his, his book on the Ten Commandments, uh, he wrote it in 2018. He puts it this way. If you love only the people who like you, or dress like you, or root for the same things you do, and vote for the same people you do as well, that's no big deal. Everybody does that. But what about your enemies? What about the people who mistreat you? What about the people who don't understand you? By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, the Catechism says that God tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly to them. When we think about the high bar of loving our neighbors, I wonder if we think about our own life even in the past week? Has there been a time, a moment, where one of us have been unrighteously angry? Where one of us have had a thought that crossed our minds that was not honoring to our neighbor? loving to the other. We can easily show it in the way that we speak to our, our spouses or, or when we silently judge some action that's taking place. Perhaps when we explode at our children for the most simple thing. When somebody drives in front of us and then slows down and turns, and you wonder, why did they need to pass me in the first place? But somehow it doesn't come out that way. It usually comes out in a way like you think that that person had cursed your entire family. 
Anger can be serious, even though murder seems like a low bar. It's pretty high. I wonder, too, loving our neighbor, how is it and how easy it is, is it for us to be the receiver of gossip? To not stop someone when they're telling us something that isn't involve us. When we, when we look at this command to not murder in this way, that low bar that becomes high, it can be pretty sobering in our lives. How often, perhaps, do we stand by? We say that we're just bystanders of something going on, but the catechism says that we should not be party to someone else doing something. Hmm. It's difficult. We love our neighbors by not murdering them. We love our neighbors by by not speaking lies or, or, or twisting their words, giving false testimony, as the commandment puts it, not gossiping or slandering or, or, or um, rashly condemning someone without actually hearing from them. Avoiding lying and deceit. To be people who love the truth and pursue the truth and speak the truth no matter what cost. Instead of twisting the words of our neighbor or another, Perhaps we are doing everything we can to, to guard our neighbor's name. Hmm. God desires his people to live differently than the world around them. That's why he gave the commandments. that people would be able to see God by the, the way that they live and how they interact with one another as they respond to the grace that God already gave them by saving them. As, as they work to love God and love other people. And I think loving God and loving people is really important right now. It seems, I don't know if it's every four years, it could be every year for that matter. We like to divide people. Right now it's dividing people on one aisle and the other, perhaps. How do we show, how do we show that we love God and we love people right now? When tensions seem to be so high where it seems one side blames the other, 
and we have both sides in our congregation. We likely have both sides that we are united with through Christ in the church. Talking the national church right here in America, right? What, what does it look like to not murder? What does it look like, that low bar to, to not bear false witness? When we think about those becoming much, much higher standards, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act, what we are party to, how is our speech with one another when that person isn't present? Is it honoring? Does it hold up someone's good name or does it tear them down? Perhaps the church in this time must look different than the nation that's around us. Maybe it's disagreeing agreeably. Listening compassionately and empathetically. Maybe it's remaining silent when you don't have something good to say about a particular candidate. Perhaps it's not letting ourselves get sucked into an extremism. That, that puts someone who believes something different than you all the way as far extreme as that side could perhaps get. Or all the way on the other side as extreme as that could get. It's living differently. Not letting divisiveness and polarization have too much power in our lives. Would someone say about us if they heard us speak about a political party we do not like? After they heard us speak about that, would they say, that person loves God and loves others. I wonder. It seems like a pretty high bar. So I wonder. I can't make an application for you in your life, but I wonder what is one thing that you can do this week differently to show others, the nations, that you love God and that you love others. Maybe it's listening, giving a generous ear, and holding our tongue when we really just want to respond. But here's the thing. No matter how hard you try to hit that high bar, you're going to fail.
I'm going to fail. We're all going to fail. And it's okay. Because God gives you grace, just like he gave the Israelites grace before he gave the commandments. Christ, too, came as grace in our life, knowing we could not fulfill them on our own. Knowing we needed someone else to live a perfect life because we never can. That doesn't mean we don't stop trying to live a holy life, to to hit that high bar, to show others that we love God, that we love others. you to make one small change. Whether it's just getting off of Facebook altogether, which I have done, and it is glorious, by the way. So if you're trying to reach me on Facebook, uh, you should probably just text me instead. Uh, anyway, that's a side note. If it's just doing something simple as that, to recenter yourself, recognize how it is you should be living, interacting with people face-to-face rather than through a screen. Point people. Point people to the hope that you have by doing two things. Love God and love others. Let's pray. Father, we... We sometimes think that these commands are old and easy to follow, but they're perhaps not as easy as we initially thought. And so we need you. We need your grace for when we fall short. We need your encouragement and your prompting by the Spirit to do the right thing at the right time, to help us to respond to divisiveness and anger when we see it. We thank you that even when we fall short, that you continue to give us that grace through Jesus Christ, that you continue to to continue to strengthen us and uphold us by your righteous hand that you continue to love us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.